Let's talk about the history of trauma research and how it impacts your relationship. Okay, so what I want to do in, in this episode is I want to talk a little bit about the history of trauma research because it's really actually a very fascinating history. And in some other videos in the future, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the changes in, in research and the changes that, that new clinicians as well as researchers were able to implement with new tools. But we got to go back first to understand just the revolutionary impact that, that the new researchers have had. So we're actually going to go all the way back to the 1880s and we're going to start with a man named Sigmund Freud. Now, trauma has probably been around as long as human beings have been around in some form or fashion. But in terms of the real systematic approach or the study to trauma, it hasn't been going on all that long, really just about 120 years that we've sort of systematically started studying and researching trauma, trying to understand it better and trying to treat it. That, that research began actually in France with a man named uh, Martin Charcot. And he was a neurologist. He was actually called the father of neurology. And uh, he started to research a group of patients that were exhibiting um, certain types of symptoms. And the symptoms could be that part of their, uh, their body was locked up, or they may faint or become easily overwhelmed. And a lot of these uh, individuals were primarily women. And so this particular disease, as they called it at the time, was called hysteria. Now, today, we don't use that term anymore. We use conversion disorder. And what that means is that something psychological in nature is going on that is causing physical symptoms. And so we, we call that conversion disorder these days. Back in, in, in 1880, was, uh, was called hysteria. So uh, Jean-Martin Charcot started researching this. And uh, as, I, as I said, he was the father of neurology. Now, a young student came to study with him named Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud, despite all of, uh, all of the jokes made about, uh, about him these days, was actually a really shrewd observer of human behavior. And he, he was really quite adept at using the tools of his time, which included hypnosis, that was the advancement of tools they had in those days, in terms of trying to be able to uncover and study hysteria. So really it began in France, and it began with Charcot, who set up this laboratory and uh, began to systematically study a certain type of patient that had a certain disorder called hysteria. Now, the real hero in the story, in my opinion, is Pierre Genet. Now, Pierre Genet was also a, um, a physician as well, and he worked uh, with uh, Charcot, but he did something extraordinary where Charcot was trying to really understand and be descriptive about what was happening and, and made lots of advancements in describing the types of symptoms and being able to classify those symptoms. Uh, Janet, uh, what he did was he, he took a phenomenological approach. Now that just simply means that he was actually talking to the patients. 
he was finding out from within their own frame of reference, and that's kind of what phenomenological means. It means from within, from within their frame of reference, what was happening for them at this given time. And so Janet really was trying to figure out not only what was happening from within their own frame of reference, trying to understand how the mind was working and, was, and these, these psychological processes were affecting physical symptoms where they had already ruled out any physiological, um, uh, any, any physiological root cause of the issue. So they knew it wasn't biological, that something had to be getting in the way causing these symptoms and so that's why then, then we're beginning to understand that, well, maybe the brain has a real impact on the body, and what is that link? And that's kind of where, where a lot of trauma field started with, um, uh, with, with these symptoms and, and these particular patients that were exhibiting what they called hysteria at the time. So Janet was really using a phenomenological approach and talking to these patients, trying to understand within their own frame what was happening. Well, it just so happens that many of these patients, many, many of them, were being sexually molested, uh, raped at times within sometimes their own family. And so the, the root cause, uh, and they call this pathogenic secrets at the time, uh, because you got to remember this is during the Elizabethan era. era. This is during a time where, uh, I mean, it was scandalous if a woman showed her ankle let alone talking about anything around sex, sexuality, or a couple's sex life, or what might be happening in the life of the family at home. This would have been anathema. This would have been just off, off out of bounds. You don't discuss this kind of thing. Uh, so Janet, as he was discovering this, was realizing that these pathogenic secrets were causing a lot of these symptoms. And then you enter Sigmund Freud. And so Sigmund Freud was a big fan of Charcot. He was a big fan of Genet as well. He went to study with them. And then he brought back this information. Sigmund Freud was a Viennese physician. He was a neurologist uh, by study. Uh, but he didn't really want to be a neurologist. Uh, he didn't want to be a practicing physician in that sense. He was a researcher. He thought of himself as a researcher. And his whole life had been leading up to trying to discover something about the world or human beings that had not been discovered before. And he was using all the tools that were available to him at the time. That included cocaine for a brief period of time because they thought maybe this was an avenue to open up uh, things that were happening inside of people and help us discover how the brain works and the mind works, um, as well as hypnosis was, was big in his day as well. So uh, he, he brought all this back to Vienna, which is where he lived. And he had a colleague named Joseph Brower. And Joseph was a little bit older than he was. And Joseph was seeing some patients as, as well as Sigmund Freud. Um, and so they began sort of talking to these patients, trying to put them under hypnosis, trying to understand how the mind worked and how something that was traumatic to them was creating the symptoms that it were. And what is the process that occurs in that from traumatic event to symptomatology that we're trying to understand. Now, what's interesting about this is that a Brower had a patient named Anna O, and it's a very famous case in psychology. And she, um, she was not able to be uh, hypnotized as easily as some of the others. So at one point, Brower decided to put aside the hypnosis and just talk to her 
and they spent some sessions just talking to each other. Well, part of what was uh, her symptom was that her arm would lock up in a certain uh, uh, rigid form, and this was part of her symptom. But under hypnosis, her arm could move freely. So there was no neurological damage. They were aware of that, otherwise she never would have been able to do that. So something was causing this, that during her waking hours, her arm was locked into place. Well, slowly, as she and Brower built up a, a uh, working relationship together, um, he was able to discover and understand her traumatic past and how that was causing her symptoms. And as such, slowly her symptoms began to dissolve. She was able to move her arm during uh, uh, waking hours when she wasn't under hypnosis. And they created this very close bond. So Anna O oh is a very famous case. They actually know her real name, and, and, and I've forgotten it at this time. But uh, Anna O oh was, was her case name that she had. And uh, Freud and Brower published Studies on Hysteria, which is one of the first books. And Freud actually wrote a paper um, about this and some other cases as well. And he called it the seduction theory. Now remember, this is probably 1893, so we're still firmly entrenched in the Victorian era. And coming out with a paper that these young women are being sexually seduced or molested or raped, uh, and that is causing the symptoms, would have been scandalous for the time. But he was seeing, Freud that is, patient after patient after patient, and this is where his research led him, to believe that something traumatic was happening, and as a result, it's causing these symptoms, these cluster of symptoms that we call hysteria. Well, he had this paper all set, and he was getting ready to publish this paper, and then something happened, something significant happened, and that is that he found that some of his patients had lied. And so, given the pressure I think Freud was feeling, feeling about, uh, uh, about uh, publishing this paper in the era in which he exists, and then finding out that some of his patients had lied, completely turned him around, he threw the paper aside, and then he started developing his whole theory about internal fantasies and wishes. So instead of something real happening to somebody outside the individual, a traumatic event that then greatly impacts the individual, he thought that everything was coming from inside the individual. And eventually he, he created a, a, a tripartite system, what he called the id, ego, and superego, and I'll get to that here in just a moment. But this is, this is terribly sad for, for trauma uh, and terribly sad for trauma researchers because by Freud not publishing that paper, and who knows, it probably wouldn't have been received well, but this would have been a hallmark publication and it could have moved us forward studying trauma uh, and instead it set us back almost nearly 100 years because it wasn't until the late 80s, 80s and into the 90s that we then really began to systematically study research, uh, and research trauma at that point in time. Uh, President H.W. Uh, Bush called the 90s the decade of the brain, and he did that because we had gotten to the point where we could develop new tools that helped us understand what was actually happening in the brain that gave rise to the mind, the way we think and perceive 
that then connects to our body, any types of symptoms that happen. So for the first time in the 90s, 1990s, we were able to see and detect that. But sadly, it set us back 100 years when Freud decided not to publish that paper. Now, I, I understand the pressures he had at the time. It probably would have been scandalous had he published that, but it is really a shame. And Judith Herman, in, in her book, Trauma uh, and Recovery, as well as Bessel van der Kolk, they, they outline this history beautifully in, in their two books as well. And so I'm not coming up with anything new here, uh, but I, I think it's a fascinating history that looks at what was the beginnings of the, the systematic research of trauma, and, and by default, the beginnings of talk therapy, what we consider psychotherapy to this day, that began with, with Brower and the case of Anna O, oh, that has led us on this journey to understand what really happens inside a human being when they experience trauma, and, and how does that impact their ability to feel safe within themselves and to create safe and secure relationships. Unfortunately, we've had to sort of unfold a, a bumpy road for the last 100 years before we've been able to um, better understand that process that was happening. Um, so, so that's a little bit about the history and the systematic research of trauma. And um, it, it, I, I think it's a fascinating history. Again, you can read it in either one of these books, Judith Herman's um, trauma and Recovery, or Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, because they talk about it in there too. And so here we are 100 years later, actually over 100 years later, but since the 1990s, we are much better able to understand. One of the tools that we use now to understand trauma and what's happening is what is called the functional MRI machine, magnetic resonance imaging. Now, you've probably seen pictures of them. It's like a big tube that they slide you in, and it has these magnets that go round and round and around inside this tube. And the functional part of it, because we've had MRIs for a while, but it was in the 1990s that we created the fMRI, the functional magnetic resonance imaging, and that allowed us to track the blood flow to various parts of the brain under certain conditions. So, for example, we could slide somebody into the tube. They are able to hold um, or, or excuse me, hear in, in their ear. We can talk to them in there, and we might put them through a series of tests while that magnet is going around and we're measuring the blood flow in the brain that tells us what areas of the brain are lighting up under these certain conditions. So one of the uh, a great uh, research study that happened was uh, with a group of patients that were um, insecurely uh, attached. And so they were going into the MRI machine and they were asked to think of a, a traumatic event that occurred. And when they did, we could see all the kinds of blood flow uh, that went on in their brain. We could see how the, the amygdala and the limbic system, which is the emotional and, and the, um, the, the um, uh, fear-based part of the brain, would light up. And we could see the, the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the reasoning rational uh, part of the brain, completely go dark or almost completely go dark. And so what this tells us is that people that have trauma, we can now measure that it's when they get triggered, 
by, by, it could be a sound, it could be a situation, it could just be a feeling that has them reimagine what happened. It is as if they are reliving that trauma. It is not something that happened in the past. It is something that is currently still happening to them. So those are the types of studies that we've been able to really understand much more deeply about what's happening with trauma and, and get a much better grip on understanding how do we actually treat trauma. One of the hallmarks of treatment is to be able to help the trauma survivor understand, and I'm not talking about necessarily cognitively, I'm talking about being able to create an experience that's from the bottom up, the body up to the limbic system and then up to the prefrontal cortex, that what happened to them is in the past and not currently happening to them now. And that's one of the outcomes of trauma treatment, is being able to understand that that was then, this is now. You can distinguish between the two, and you can feel safe in your relationship in the here and now. So we've come a long way since the 1880s in understanding trauma, understanding its symptoms, understanding how to treat trauma. And in future videos, I'll, I'll go through more studies like that. But I thought this would be an interesting one, just kind of laying out exactly what happens and what has happened over the last 120, 130 years that, that we've arrived to where we are today, which is light years away from where we were. We've done so many incredible things in terms of being able to understand how the brain works, how it gives rise to thoughts and feelings, and how it impacts the body. And we see those as very much connected. The mind, the brain and the body are very much connected. They are not separate. Only are they separate when somebody has suffered trauma and then cuts off or disassociates their, their feelings and their bodies from their mental processes, from their thinking. Um, that, that's the only way it's separated. Otherwise, and, and that is a protection maneuver. It's a strategy the person used to survive and get through uh, what they what they what they had to adapt to uh, or or the horrific event that occurred and so that is a survival strategy when we cut off our 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 feelings and our our mind from our body that's because we've moved into a place of protection and it's a survival strategy that helps us get by otherwise the sensations and feelings that get held in our body can be absolutely overwhelming and that's part of why the person experiences that what happened then is now still happening to me in this moment. So thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. 